Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to what I think is going to be a very special edition of On Point. Um, I'm very pleased today uh, to be joined by Bob Narev. Um, he's local here in Auckland, someone I've known for a while, I have immense respect for, and amongst many things, a Holocaust survivor. And so I've asked Bob to come on today uh, to share his and his wife Frida's story and for us to have a little conversation. So, Bob, welcome along. It's an absolute honor to have you here. Thank you, Simon. Very pleased to be talking to you. Um, I'll tell my story first and then Frida's story, both fairly briefly, just to give the background, and then we can get on to whatever else you wish to discuss. So, as far as I'm concerned, I was born in 1935 uh, in a relatively small town called Ischwege in Germany, uh, about uh, 200 kilometers from. Uh, the big city of Frankfurt, where my family had lived for many years. Uh, my father was a school teacher and my mother was a trained opera singer. Um, all was well until uh, uh, the latter part of the 1930s when the Nazis had come to power and uh, the discrimination uh, started uh, on a fairly serious uh, basis. First, we were required to move from our uh, a uh, little uh, house that we were living in to a particular part of town to be isolated from the rest of the population. Uh, my father uh, lost his job as a school teacher because uh, the Nazis didn't consider it appropriate for a Jewish man to teach non-Jewish children. Uh, so there being no further job in the town, uh, the family moved to uh, Frankfurt, the biggest city, where there was still one uh, uh, Jewish day school operating and my father got a position there until early 1942 uh, when the school was closed because uh, the Nazis had decided that there was little point in educating Jewish children anymore given the fate that they had in mind for them. Uh, later that year in August 1942 um, my family got a notice from the authorities to report to the local railway station uh, with uh, about a thousand other Jewish people from uh, uh, Frankfurt. Uh, I, as a six-year-old, had no idea what was happening, but uh, I'm sure my parents knew what the position was. Uh, the one thing I do remember uh, of that occasion was that a Nazi officer came up to my father, asked him whether he had any money or valuables on him. My father honestly said, I know I have nothing like that. Uh, he was searched and they found the equivalent of a 50 cent piece uh, in his jacket pocket and this Nazi officer hit him across the face several times till his nose bled and that's the one vivid memory I still have of that occasion. Anyhow, we boarded the train uh, with uh, the other uh, people who uh, were to join us. Um, it wasn't uh, the cattle wagon type of transport that was used in Eastern Europe. It was probably the equivalent of a, a, a third-class carriage. Um, and uh, after a day and a half, we crossed the border into Czechoslovakia, which had by then been uh, conquered uh, by the German army. And uh, the train stopped at a railway siding. Um, it was August, as I said, uh, in, uh, which is the hottest part of the year in Europe. Uh, we were required to get off the train with the few belongings that we had been allowed to take with us. And we had to walk for about three kilometers uh, from the railway siding 
to a town uh, called Terezin in the Czech language, but Theresienstadt, which had been renamed by the Germans, uh, which had by then become a concentration camp. It, it had been a garrison town for the Czech army, but of course the army had by then gone. Um, the uh, walk, a uh, three-kilometer walk from the railway line was uh, pretty grim given the temperature and given also the concerns that particularly the adults had as to what the future might hold. When we arrived there, uh, the men were separated from the women and children, uh, and uh, we were respectively uh, uh, housed, if that's the right word, in uh, the old army barracks in uh, two or three uh, tiered bedroom bunks. And I stayed there with my mother for about five or six weeks when the Nazis decided that the children should be separated from uh, their mothers. And uh, I finished up in what was euphemistically called a children's home with a whole lot of other children. And uh, my uh, father was, of course, in another set of barracks. Um, unfortunately, he became ill the following year and... Uh, had to have a fairly major operation. There were good doctors there, but no real medical facilities, so he uh, didn't survive that uh, operation. Uh, my mother uh, was required to uh, carry out uh, the equivalent of slave labor. She was in a factory uh, uh, splitting mica metal, which was used as an insulation material by the German uh, armed forces. And... Um, I was fortunate in the children's home in that uh, although children were coming from all parts of Europe, uh, very few of them stayed very long because uh, Terezin was a uh, transit camp um, to which uh, children and adults, of course, had been gathered uh, from all parts of Europe and most of them were ultimately and sometimes very quickly deported to Auschwitz and uh, most of them uh, didn't survive uh, there, of course, because that was effectively a death camp. Uh, Terezin or Theresienstadt wasn't a death camp, uh, but the conditions weren't particularly marvellous. They were, after all, a concentration camp. Uh, food was minimal. It consisted basically of thin soup, potatoes, very occasionally some meat, which uh, I subsequently found out was probably horse meat. Uh, but uh, uh, I was never conscious really of being hungry because I suspect that the adults supplemented the children's rations by giving some of their own to them. Um, I fairly quickly learned the Czech language because that became the common language in the house, given that there were children from so many different countries with different languages. Um, we had a young Jewish trainee teacher with us. She did her best to... Uh, do a bit of teaching without uh, the usual teaching materials. And for the rest of the time, we were permitted to wander in the street because uh, there was no way uh, of escaping from the camp. When my mother wasn't working, uh, I was able to see her. So there were really no restric restrictions on our movements uh, in the camp. Um, I was there from the age of six until the age of nine, and I'll come to that. Uh, the departure a little later on. Um, and uh, my memory of the camp is uh, 
fairly dim. And I think the reason for that is what I've heard subsequently, that children who go through uh, traumatic times tend to uh, uh, take it off their memory so that uh, there's really very little left of uh, what actually occurred there. One thing I do remember was an occasion, I think it was uh, late 1943, when the Nazis uh, decided to uh, hold a census of the people they had brought there. Uh, seemed a bit odd because they obviously knew who was there. Uh, but they took us to a field about the size of Eden Park on a wet and windy November day, uh, lined us up in groups of 100 and counted us, found that they hadn't quite counted the right number and counted, counted us again. And it wasn't until late in the evening that they finally allowed us to go back to the camp. And uh, a number of the people who were in that field on the day didn't survive the ordeal, particularly the elderly and those who uh, uh, weren't uh, fit to stand all day under those conditions. Um, there was a continuous coming and going of people. Uh, I didn't really make any uh, lasting friends in the house because uh, uh, very few of them stayed for more than a short time and uh, disappeared to uh, parts that at the time I didn't know of, but I subsequently found out that it was indeed Auschwitz. So uh, we were there until February 1945, three uh, days, not sorry, going back, three months before the war finished, when the uh, Nazis called for volunteers to go to Switzerland. Um, nobody believed that that was uh, going to be the destination. Uh, the adults thought it was just a ruse to get people to volunteer to go to Auschwitz. Uh, but uh, I was by then nine years old. I wanted to go on another train journey. So I nagged my mother until she decided she'd volunteer after all because there was nothing much to be lost. And uh, as things turned out, uh, uh, we got on the train with 1,200 other uh, inmates, uh, traveled through bombed out Germany and crossed the border into Switzerland. And that was uh, the end of the war. Uh, for us, in fact, the end of uh, uh, the concentration camp uh, episode. Uh, it was also fortunate that we left then because uh, between February and May when the war finished and the, uh, the camp was liberated by the Russians, there was a major typhoid epidemic and many people who were in the camp at the time still uh, succumbed to that epidemic. So there was another piece of, if you like, good luck. Uh, that uh, helped us to survive. So that's basically our story. Incredible. Uh, not even sure where to start, but you'd also mentioned perhaps sharing uh, Frida's story. And then um, is that something we should do uh, now and then talk on uh, some wider topics? Yes. Well, I think it's probably appropriate to carry on with her story so that the, the two show how we got together. Uh, she was born in a little town in what was then Poland called Witze, uh, which is uh, just across the border from Lithuania. Uh, again, her family had been in that town for uh, literally generations. Her father had a little shoe shop. Her mother was a school teacher. And uh, they were part of the community. All was well until uh, the Nazis occupied Poland and came to the little town. 
And uh, the first thing they did was to select 15 of the leading Jewish men of the town, uh, took them out to a field, shot all 15 of them, and buried them in a mass, mass grave. And uh, Frida's father was one of those 15. So she never really knew her father because uh, she was too young at the time to remember. Her mother realized that uh, there was little hope of uh, a three-year-old girl surviving, so uh, uh, she made the difficult but sensible uh, decision to take her to a friendly Catholic family on a farm nearby, uh, said goodbye to her, and that was the last she saw of her mother. Uh, the mother and the one other sister simply disappeared, and we've never found out what happened to them, although we can well imagine. Uh, the uh, lady on the farm, at the risk of uh, her own risk and uh, the risk of her teenage son, looked after Frida for uh, the better part of three years. Um, so Frida lived in uh, quite good conditions on the farm. She had food, she had uh, accommodation, she had very good treatment. Uh, the war didn't really affect her on the farm, except that from time to time they heard planes flying overhead and uh, gunfire in the distance. And the only time that uh, there seemed any concern was when uh, German officers came to the farm to look for uh, partisans who they were trying to uh, uh, catch. Uh, and uh, Frida had to hide in a big trunk in order not to be discovered. But apart from that, uh, and of course, uh, realizing that she was an orphan, uh, her time on the farm was uh, uh, quite a happy one. Then in uh, mid-1944, uh, when the Russians already were starting to come across from the east, um, a young woman uh, came to the farm, said she was Frida's sister and had come to pick her up. Well, it turned out to be the third sister of the family uh, who had escaped from a ghetto and had joined a group of uh, partisan in the woods uh, trying to disrupt the German war effort. She knew where uh, mother had taken Frida and uh, after some discussion with a Catholic lady who was obviously not that keen to let go, uh, a girl with whom she had become very friendly and uh, whom she had sheltered at the risk of her own life. Uh, but apparently um, she had agreed with mother that uh, if any member of the family survived, uh, they would be allowed to take uh, Frida with them. So Frida went with the sister to back to the town where they had come from, but then the Germans, of course, had left and uh, joined a, a small group of other survivors who eventually decided that they didn't think they wanted to live under Russian rule and uh, illegally crossed through Poland into Western Germany. Uh, where they finished up in a series of displaced persons camps. They were not the refugee camps that we now know of, but uh, camps run by uh, the American occupying forces, well conducted and well looked after. Uh, and uh, really, that was the end of the war for Frida and uh, being with her sister and uh, brother-in-law, because her sister had in the meantime married, and they stayed um, in these camps, and there were several of them, including one in Eschwege, but I had well gone by then, of course. Uh, and uh, 
Uh, they were destined to go what was then Palestine and subsequently became Israel uh, with a whole group of uh, uh, immigrants. Uh, but Frida, fortunately for me, contracted an ear infection, wasn't able to join the group. And uh, by the time she was better, uh, relatives who'd come to New Zealand just before the war found out that uh, they had survived uh, with some difficulty, got them a permit to come to New Zealand. And uh, they arrived here in 1949, uh, two years after I had arrived. And uh, like me, Frida found Paris, Palestine uh, no longer an issue and found paradise in New Zealand. And clearly, clearly found a husband as well. Yes, I'm not sure who found whom, but we found each other. Oh, it's one. Bob, thank you for sharing what's... Every time I, I hear your and, and Frida's story, it's it's incredibly intense and and moving. If I could put it this way, what what gives you the the courage and the strength to talk about something which really is so horrific in terms of memory? What is it that gives you that strength and focus? Well, the interesting first of all is that uh, although the Holocaust was really a very traumatic experience, particularly in the context of having lost. Uh, my father and Frida's parents, uh, we were not as much affected by it as perhaps the adults were. For example, my mother, while she was still alive, regularly had uh, nightmares uh, relating to our experiences, but uh, neither of us had uh, any of that. And uh, I think uh, it was our belief that it was better and not to dwell too much on the past as far as our own lives were concerned, but to look to the future, which was made a great deal easier by having three children and now eight grandchildren, unfortunately, all in Australia. Oh, no. Oh. So, I mean, obviously a, a remarkable uh, turn, if you will, in New Zealand, family and, and so forth. But um, I know a big part of your life today, it's been actually sharing your story uh, to schools, uh, particularly to, to young people. Were you able to share a little bit about what sort of work you're doing in that regard? Yes. Well, uh, probably about 10 or 12 years ago, we were approached by uh, uh, one of the girls' secondary schools and asked to uh, speak of our experiences as part of their history and social studies program. Uh, we readily agreed because we felt, uh, firstly, that the story ought to be known so that people can perhaps uh, learn something from our experiences. And secondly, we felt that we owed it to those who didn't make it, uh, that uh, their stories should be told. So this is how we came to speak to that particular school. Shortly afterwards, there was an article on that talk in one of the education magazines and uh, things developed from there. And we've spoken not only to uh, schools, but also to adult groups and uh, I quite recently finished talk number 109. Which is absolutely remarkable. One of those have been to my uh, wife's school, and I know there's been other events, a number of foundations uh, dedicated to making sure the Shoah and the Holocaust are not forgotten. So I suppose the, the, the broad question is, why is it important to remember? I mean, obviously, I'll have my own views, and I, I know it's important, but, you know, from you, why, why is it important that we remember this particular part of history? Well, uh, there's what has now become a fairly trite saying, I suppose, lest we forget. 
but uh, really the problem is more uh, that if the history of the Holocaust is forgotten, uh, the possibility of it recurring again is even stronger than it might otherwise have been. So we felt right through and we still feel that if we tell the story, perhaps there'll be some realization of what the consequences are of really the, the three evils, uh, discrimination, racism, and ultimately genocide. There are some, Bob, that, you know, we'll look throughout the course of human history and there have been terrible activities and massacres and so forth. The Holocaust, to a number of us as observers from a distance, see it as a, a fairly unique um, event, something which is at a much higher level. Is that something you would agree with? And if so, why? Entirely. Uh, it's unique in the sense that while there have been other genocides and other uh, episodes of discrimination and racism, and unfortunately still that continues, uh, but it is the only time that I know of when an allegedly uh, civilised nation, as a matter of government policy, decided to get rid of a whole race, not only in their own country, but in the other countries which they ultimately conquered in Europe. So it is unique in that sense. I think one thing I've observed and be interested in your views that there's um, some people are trying at times, not going to mention names or anything, but there are times I've observed where people are trying to universalize the Holocaust. They're trying to take that experience of discrimination and violence and apply it to, to other situations. Uh, particularly in today, uh, is that something which you re reject um, outright? Well, I yes, I reject it in, in this way, that to universalize it, it means that it makes it similar to other events. And as I've just said, it is so, so different and such a unique event that you can't universalize it. You can learn this lessons from it but you can't say, well, this is just another episode of the same type of uh, event. And so why do you see it as important for New Zealanders uh, to learn? There'll, there'll be some, if I was to play the devil's advocate, that say, well, this is something that happened uh, in Europe in particular. You know, this wasn't New Zealand. What, what, why? Well, what do you say to those people? What do you say to young New Zealand kids in particular, say that this is relevant today here in New Zealand? Well, uh, can I start the answer by quoting uh, the uh, 18th century English uh, philosopher and politician Edmund Burke, who said that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. And the real problem is that too many good people, and there were some in Germany, not all of them were evil, uh, but uh, there wasn't very much opposition to what was happening. and they were all at best bystanders instead of being upstanders and doing something to try and prevent it, to talk sense into those who uh, uh, were trying to achieve their objective and uh, ultimately, of course, uh, succeeded to the extent of six million Jewish deaths. So the importance in it is to make people realize what can happen if uh, you allow this sort of uh, activity to firstly arise uh, and then to continue and grow because uh, there is no way 
in which something like this can go on unless it is supported by the majority of, uh, of the population or at least uh, to some extent condoned. So it's probably asking the question in a different way, and, and that's really how do we stop something like this uh, happening again? As you say, it's Edmund Burke's um, axioms are, are really important when people have to, to speak up. But have there been, when you look back, there were moments uh, when you look at the history of where people should have done something differently, could have done something differently. What, what would be the sort of lessons you would say to those listening? Say, look, these are the things to watch out for. These are the things to speak up and, and when. Well, of course, it started with talk when Hitler's, Hitler was a real demagogue, wasn't he? So uh, when he started talking and expounding uh, his theories of uh, racial superiority, people listened. And of course, it happened at a time when Germany was in some uh, social and economic difficulty, and there were ready listeners uh, uh, available to him. And uh, the talk uh, turned into action uh, and uh, writing in the, uh, in the press and in, in many other um, media. And uh, it grew from there. I suppose it's that those early seeds, isn't it? It, it seems, seems to me, again, as an observer from a distance compared to you, it, you've got to stomp these trends out very quickly and early. Yes. Well, it was relatively easy for Hitler to do what he did because uh, uh, the Jewish population uh, was a fairly identifiable group. And uh, so often in history, they have, uh, unfortunately, wrongly, but they've been blamed for any... Uh, uh, bad events that have happened, whether they be economic or social or whatever. And uh, by pointing the finger at them, he got the support that he was looking for and things uh, developed from there. Turned, turned into burning of books, uh, desecration of shops and synagogues, and uh, ultimately, of course, uh, uh, a destruction of a very large proportion of the Jewish population of Europe. Some have put to me, Bob, in the last few years that sort of anti-Semiticism uh, is the canary in the coal mine around sort of growing um, authoritarianism or totalitarian behaviour or uh, discriminatory behaviour. Is that something you would um, agree with? Um, is it something you are seeing hints of again in, in society in general? Well, without wishing to be supercilious, I've never been in a coal mine to see a canary operating. But it's, clear, it's, uh, it's clearly a signal that something is amiss. And that is the uh, uh, notional canary. And that is the warning sign that people should heed. And uh, to the extent that they have been better informed than they might otherwise have been, uh, our talks in a small way might uh, be that, uh, not be the canary, but uh, be uh, the factor which enables people to uh, identify the canary when it starts singing. Which I think is so vitally important. And so think when you're talking to the young people, how do they, how do they respond? You get the whole sort of array from that is don't get it through to emotional, upset, more curious. What are sort of the responses you often get? Uh, the whole array of that. We always have at least a third part of our talk 
devoted to questions and answers. And we get some very intelligent questions, others uh, a little less well-informed. But first of all, there's a very large majority of students, and we basically talk to years 9 through to 12, um, who uh, hadn't really heard of the Holocaust, let alone the, uh, the seriousness of it. And therefore, they, of course, were uh, surprised as a mild word to hear what we had to uh, uh, tell them. Uh, but uh, there were interesting questions. Uh, one is, are you still Jewish? In other words, with your experiences, do you still believe in God? Well, of course we do. I'm not a particularly religious person, but uh, both Frida and I are traditionally Jewish. And uh, again, not only because we feel that way, but because we feel that six million having died for the cause, uh, we should not uh, move away from it. And our children feel the same way about it. Well, that's something remarkable in itself. I mean, do you, there's been some surveys, I think they're particularly coming out of the UK around knowledge of the Holocaust, uh, reducing substantially. Um, is that a worry that you have here in New Zealand or in, in general terms that people are forgetting, we're not teaching uh, in history the Holocaust? Well, it, it's a real concern because not only has there been a survey in the UK and elsewhere, but there was one fairly recently in New Zealand, and the statistics show that a very significant portion, in fact, the majority of people either haven't heard of the Holocaust or had no idea exactly what happened, and the younger they are, the less they know. So it really, from our point of view, is quite important, uh, not only to prevent a, a Holocaust in the strict sense of the word, but to prevent the Holocaust with a small h uh, to recur somewhere else. It's been one of the things, I mean, I don't engage as much as you um, in this topic, obviously, but when I have talked to some younger people, um, disturbed at times the lack of knowledge, followed by an incomprehensibility that when I do explain it to them as best I can, they sort of, that can't be true. And it's like, oh my God, the, the gap between the, the historical time, the facts, and now where life's so much easier, they go, oh, that, that couldn't have happened. It's like, oh, it did. It really did. Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, as you know, uh, there are, uh, fortunately, not a large number, but uh, there are a number of what are known as Holocaust deniers who say mm. that it either never happened or didn't happen to the extent that it did. And the only way to counter that is to speak of your personal experiences. I can't uh, myself prove conclusively that six million died, although the Germans kept their own records of this and it's all pretty clearly uh, documented. Uh, but I do know that my father died, my two grandmothers died in the camp. Uh, I never knew my parents-in-law or uh, my sister-in-law or my uncle who, who with his family died in Auschwitz. And you multiply that by the, the number of times that you can speak to those who are lucky enough to survive to realize that it really did happen. And let's face it, whether the number is 6 million or 5,980,000 really doesn't make a difference to the overall calamity that occurred. 
which is why I think what you, Frida, and others do uh, is so important, particularly to those deniers. I suppose for me, it's the younger ones where it's the incomprehensibility. So they're not strictly, for me, as I understand it, denying. It's just that they go, oh, it just couldn't happen. Again, that they've not seen enough struggle or suffering or history to understand that it, it does happen. So again, I think it really amplifies the work that you're, you're doing. Yeah. Well, we're fortunate in that there's been a degree of uh, official recognition of that now because without wishing to blow my own trumpet, uh, I was made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit about 20 years ago uh, for the work that I'm doing. And more recently, that's been upgraded to an officer with the New Zealand Order of Merit because they realised, the, and it was specifically for education, and it's been realised that this is an important aspect of uh, uh, what we do. Well, of course, not only the education. Actually, well, firstly, we should probably be working on a knighthood for you. If you, you you're, you're on the way up, you're moving up the steps here, uh, Bob. So, um, <laughs> quite, <laughs> quite unnecessary and probably a bit late anyhow. No, no, no. I'm quite happy with being Bob and not Sir Bob. Uh, but uh, no, we we have uh, not only done a fair amount of community work in our own community, but both Fred and I have been fairly heavily involved in. Uh, the general community and Frida, for example, got a Queen's Service Medal for the work that she's been doing. And um, uh, I've been involved in a number of uh, uh, pro bono entities uh, uh, in the general community. Well, then, well, a huge thanks for that. I mean, I said, knowing you and what you and Frida do in the community is, is incredible. Um, and when you think about the horrors that you were part of to the great fruition that you've brought now in family and service. But as I say, you, you run the education, you were a big part of the Shadows of Shawar as well. That was an important visual representation, wasn't it? Yes, that was done by Perry and Cherie Trotter. He's a professional photographer and it's taken a great interest uh, in uh, uh, doing uh, what, what we consider important in the way of educating about the Holocaust and uh, for my sins, I'm chairman of that one, as well as a number of other entities. Well, two two last questions, if that's okay. So, I suppose that the first is: Are there, in a sense, any last messages that you would want to give listeners as someone who has been through the Holocaust? You and and Frida, are there messages to people today in what we do and see? Are there messages you have? for us? What, what's that sort of key learnings that you'd say, this is what I want to tell you right here and now? Well, one of the messages with schools, of course, is uh, uh, the hope that not only will they listen and learn, but perhaps go home and talk about it so that their parents as well will perhaps be a little better informed and have uh, living proof, if you like, of uh, how many died. Uh, and what the consequences of uh, the sort of policy of the Nazis uh, led to. Uh, I can't expound on that any further other than to say we consider it important work. We consider it work that's very worthwhile. We don't, well, the enjoy, last... we, we don't enjoy doing it, but we think no. it's important and uh, we do it. Oh, again, I, I think there's... I just I struggle to find even the right words, uh, Bob. The, the courage, in effect, that it takes to tell this story that comes with a, a lot of pain, which is probably the 
the segue to my last question, which is probably more of a moral one. You know, there are those that say we, we all have to forgive and forget. Um, what, do you, what do you just say to people uh, about that, uh, particularly when you look at something as horrific as the, the Holocaust? Well, the answer is uh, relatively simple. Uh, we cannot forgive those who were responsible for what happened. I mean, it's just uh, so enormous uh, as to be unforgivable. Uh, we obviously can't forget uh, because here we are talking about it all the time. So it certainly remains in our memory, and we're hoping that the, the people who listen to us will also not forget. But having said that, we bear no grudge against any subsequent uh, generations, be it German or any other who were not involved uh, in what had happened, and in many cases uh, do their best to uh, uh, atone for it. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful and appropriate place to stop, Bob. You and Frida are a remarkable couple in and of yourselves, um, and then to, to take the time as you do to share these stories, these deeply personal stories, can I say is incredibly worthwhile and appreciated. So thank you so much for coming on today. It's a pleasure.